is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Syria, have the generals had enough of Assad? Is NATO lining up its Baltic army? The Defence Committee needs a new chairman and someone's got their eye on the job. I have spent my life in the armed forces and now I'm a politician. It is also something I care deeply about. What's Harry's game and the Navy SEAL on show in Russia? Is Syria's president about to lose the war? Bashar al-Assad has dismissed recent battlefield losses as just part of the ups and downs of a long-term war and says victory remains inevitable. But is it? I'm joined, as usual, by our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello, Christopher. Uh, While we've all been obsessed by the general election in Britain, there have been some interesting developments in Syria. There's a suggestion that uh, one of um, uh, President Assad's number one generals and at one time was running an intelligence organisation, is simply fronting a group of officers, senior officers, uh, that are going against Assad. Now, we've got no definite proof, but the rumours are coming from about sort of six or seven different sources, so you start taking it quite seriously from that point on. And why would this be happening? Well, two reasons. One is that the war isn't going anywhere for Assad, um, and that the organisation of some of the rebel groups, and they are disparate organisations, they're doing better than before. And one of the recognitions that this is happening is that uh, that, uh, Assad is ordering the greater use of chemical weapons in these chemical bombs which are dropped from, from helicopters. And that's sort of, if you like, last resort. Uh, the chemical weapon being the poor man's nuclear weapons, it was, as it was called. Let's talk now to Sir Andrew Green, a former British ambassador in Damascus. Sir Andrew, good to speak to you today. What, what do you make of the recent developments? Is the situation reaching some sort of end game, desperate measures, etc.? Well, I think we're quite a long way from any end game. Uh, clearly, the situation on the ground is, is a very complex one. Uh, and certainly, victory uh, for the Assad regime is not, in, uh, Assad regime is not inevitable. Uh, far from it. Uh, I think they're, they're struggling to survive. But I think they will uh, for a very considerable time at least. Uh, and that's because the Alawites, who are the, the sect who, uh, who uh, run the country, will be absolutely determined not to lose. They fear that if they lose, they'll be massacred. And I think we ourselves, as the UK, need to be careful what we wish for, uh, because an end of the regime is, I think, likely to lead to terrible bloodshed. Uh, The Alawites and the other minorities, including the Christians, will be at terrible risk. Mm, You you said this, Andrew, be careful what we wish for. Mm. What do we wish for exactly? Because I'm confused where we're standing on this exactly at the moment. Well, in a, in a sense, I'm saying what we should not wish for, which is a collapse of the regime, uh, because the outcome would be chaos uh, for some period of months or years, and thereafter we would have an Islamic extremist regime of some kind. And that is the opposite of what we need to see. So um, I think what we need, actually, is some kind, eventually some kind of accommodation with the uh, Assad regime or something very similar to it, maybe not Assad himself, but uh, a, an accommodation with the uh, effective power in Damascus mm. and between them and those who are fighting against them. Christopher, which kind of regional players do you think could bring about some kind of resolution well, in you Syria? Have to, you have to remember that quite often those regional players, in fact, have taken 
taken sides. So you've got people in the Gulf states, for example, are backing some of the rebels, um, and it's we're back to the Shia. Who do you back? Iran, for example, is is a Shia organization, and who and and the Alawites are part of that Shia family. Mm. I do know, I do know that in the State Department in Washington at the moment, there is a contingency plan, and it's got at the top of it, and I can't remember the exact words, but more or less, Kerry, the Secretary of State, our Quimcher Foreign Minister, saying, at some time we have to recognise that we may have to talk to Assad. Yes. Now, that is important. A, I think it's good news. Mm. Uh, secondly, it is also getting to the idea of the realism that the, the person that actually is in charge at the moment of the war is Assad. Mm. I, agree, I agree with that entirely. Um, for so long as Assad has the backing of Iran, which is a major regional power, Russia, a world power, of course, and also the uh, provider of much of its weapons and ammunition, and Hezbollah, a Shiite regime, a Shiite militia in, in South Lebanon who can and do produce troops when, when needed. With those three things, uh, there's no way that uh, Assad is going to fall any time soon. And as I've just said, it wouldn't be good for us if he did. What about Russia? Well, uh, the Russians, of course, have their own interests uh, in, in the Middle East, and one of them is that uh, Syria is their last remaining ally in the region. So they won't want to lose that, and they won't want to lose the, 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 some limited use of a warm water port, and they certainly won't want to lose in a uh, political sense to the United States. Christopher, I mean, if what Sandra is suggesting continues, Assad will hang on for longer. We have different factions at play in the country. What's going to happen? It's not so much the different factions. It's people, as I say, people outside as well. Mm. Uh, we have to remember there's another side. For example, who is the one country or one group of countries that at the moment must feel rather nervous of what's going on, led by Saudi Arabia? Saudi Arabia... Uh, you could argue are backing the wrong side to some extent at the moment, yes. um, because the Saudis, uh, the Saudi uh, uh, hierarchy is, is Sunni, and uh, the Sunnis are not Assad's organisation; they are Shia. So that's the size of it. In the long term, and history tells us that uh, this is the crude way of putting it: everybody else should stay out, and the region resolves its mm. own its own crises. Sandra, sh should that be the case, what, what do you think will happen? Is it going to be a long, prolonged, more bloodshed before there's any resolution? Yes, for certain. Uh, I agree with Christopher. He's a historian, not, not I, but um, I think a historical view is important in these situations. Uh, and I'm afraid this is going to continue for some considerable time. Uh, it, it's unfortunately a, a part of the struggle between the Sunnis and the, and the Shia, as, as uh, Christopher mentioned, led on the one side by Saudi Arabia uh, and the other side by Iran. And I think the Saudis are spurred into this uh, by the view that they don't want Shia power uh, in, Iran, which, uh, in Iran, which is the base, and then Iraq, where they've expanded substantially, uh, and then there's Syria and there's Lebanon. So uh, it's a regional struggle for power, and an awful lot of people being killed as a result of it. All right, so Andrew Green, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for your time. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, RAF Chinooks are being prevented from helping in Nepal. Has Britain sent the wrong type of helicopter? And some right royal opinions have aired about the Ministry of Defence. This is BFBS 
Sid Rap. Let's talk about Europe now. This week, a massive NATO exercise in Estonia reached its conclusion. According to a report in the Times newspaper, the military chiefs of the Baltic states are writing to General U.S. General Philip Breedlove, NATO's Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, for help in defending their countries against a possible Russian attack. They're going to ask for the formation of a new unit similar to the Berlin Brigade that was stationed in Germany during the Cold War. Well, earlier I spoke to former Chief of the General Staff, Lord Dannett, the first public figure to say that Britain was making a mistake by deciding to pull troops out of Germany. And I asked him what he made of that idea. Well, I think there are two issues there, and we'll just try and keep them separate. First of all, as far as the threat to the Baltic states and the fringe, eastern fringes of Europe from a resurgent Russia is concerned, I think those of us in the West have an absolute obligation uh, under the treaty, uh, as, f- as far as NATO is concerned, to support those countries that feel under threat. And those small Baltic states, quite rightly, do feel under threat when they look at what's going on in East Ukraine. So it's absolutely right that we support them, both in terms of air policing, air patrolling, uh, and also taking part in exercises. I completely agree with that. Whether um, the UK will want to be in any shape or form involved in permanently basing any troops in that area, I think it's another matter. Your other question relates to the drawdown in Germany. Uh, In general terms, uh, I've been very much for the drawdown in Germany, but not the total drawdown. The question that I tried to raise a year or so ago was we have, for example, a very well-found armoured infantry brigade in Paderborn and Senelager. It's going to be expensive to bring that brigade back to the United Kingdom. I'd like to see the army... Uh, maintained at 82,000 or even increased to, say, 85,000 and perhaps keep that Germany, uh, keep that brigade uh, in Germany. I think it would be a visible symbol that we're continuing to be uh, shoulder-to-shoulder with our NATO European partners and send something of a message to Mr Putin. If that turns out not to be the case, I don't think it weakens our position in NATO, but I think that to keep that uh, brigade in Germany is actually quite cost-effective Uh, And I think it would also send a pretty strong message. So I hope this is something that the government will think about, both in policy terms and pragmatically on cost grounds too. There's talk of something akin to the Berlin Brigade. Just remind us what that was and what role it played. Well, the Berlin Brigade, you have to remember that um, until the end of the Cold War, Berlin was some 100 miles behind the Iron Curtain, deep into Eastern Europe. And the British maintained an infantry brigade in Berlin, Uh, under the treaties that uh, followed the end of the Second World War, as did the Germans, wrong, sorry, as did the um, Americans and as did the French. So those four international brigades were some 100 miles behind the Iron Curtain and were a visible presence of the West and NATO's interest uh, in Germany and in the future of Germany. Whether leaving a brigade in Senelager and Patagon would have the same effect, I'm not sure. But I think you take my wider point that it would be a visible symbol of the UK continuing its responsibilities uh, in Germany. I'm not sort of hard over on this one, but I think on pragmatic and cost grounds, it's something at least the government should consider. In terms of requests, the Commander-in-Chief of the Estonian Defence Forces saying he'd like to see a NATO battalion in Poland and in one of each of the Baltic states as well. How feasible do you think that is? Well, I'm not sure it's feasible from a UK point of view, and I don't think there'll be much appetite for our government to do that. Uh, What is perhaps more promising and has already been announced by NATO is this very high readiness task force that the UK is going to contribute to on a rotational basis. Now, if that can be given real capability and real substance, 
and exercises regularly in these fringe areas, then I think the people of the Baltic states can have some reassurance that the rest of NATO, and particularly its European partners in NATO, are taking their responsibilities seriously. I'd like to see the UK contributing regularly and significantly to that uh, high readiness task force. I think it's, it's a good thing, it's a good activity for our servicemen to be involved in, and it does take, play an important part in the strategic message that we want to send to Mr Putin in particular. And is that the kind of message that General Breedlove, the American general, the top military commander in Europe, should be saying to those requests for more support in the area? Well, I think it's right. I mean, there's no point being in um, an alliance like NATO if we don't stand shoulder to shoulder with those who are on the fringes and those who are feeling threatened. Currently, the threat would seem to come from the east, would seem to come from a resurgent Russia. Uh, who knows in the future where a threat might come? But I think, I think if a a treaty alliance is to mean anything. It means that we have to stand with each other and contribute militarily. And I can fully understand why the Chief of Staff of Estonia is making these requests. That was Lord Dannett speaking to me earlier. So, Christopher, this high readiness task force with real capabilities is the answer? It, it's, it's not the answer. And uh, then you get the bigger question, and I'll tell you one basic reason. When the Warsaw Pact collapsed, when the whole thing, Cold War, finished... Uh, NATO, led by America, promised the Russians that they would not, they, NATO, would not start exercising nor basing troops in what was the Warsaw Pact. They have done exactly that. Mm. They've been doing nothing else but exercising and basing troops there. You can then begin to understand why, perhaps, perhaps, why Putin gets nervous, doesn't believe anybody, doesn't trust anybody. But there are other sides of this. Um, we're talking about the High Readiness Task Force, the In-N-Out Task Force. It makes a lot of sense, except where does it go? You have to have, for example... Where should it go? Uh, where well, might it go? Where might it go? The idea would be to go along the Baltic, the Baltic coast. You don't need you can you can have a training battalion, for example, or, or the or the standing force for a training battalion, let's say in Czechoslovakia or Poland or whatever. But this Estonia-led uh, Baltic coast becomes very important in everybody's mind because that's the easiest for the Russians to influence because there's a large Russian-speaking population. What you can have, I mean, the general uh, General Dalit was there talking about. Well, I don't know if we should have all these soldiers there. The thing it becomes a joint thing. So you do have soldiers who are assigned. You, where are you going to get the brigade, uh, the, the whole brigade collaboration, the brigade setup, which is a big, big setup? You mm. take 20,000 people eventually to keep it running over a period of five years. What you do, you make it joint. So you could have, you said, well, the RAF wouldn't get involved, the Navy wouldn't get involved. Well, exactly what they would do. The RAF would have in and out uh, uh, deployments. The Navy would be part of the mine countermeasures uh, standing naval force, for example, which it mm. is now. So you can actually do it without basing, and that is the ideal. I mean, for example, the Russians and the Chinese are, are exercising at the moment on the same sort of thing in the Black Sea, and mm. therefore you have the counter to that. Plenty for the new government to think about, isn't there? Uh, well, yes, if they ever get round to thinking about something like that. Well, they have thought about the new faces at the Ministry of Defence. Michael Fallon has remained in his job as Secretary of State, as does Philip Dunn as Minister for Procurement. Penny Morden is the new Minister for the Armed Forces, and Mark Lancaster joins the Defence team as Minister for Defence Personnel, Welfare and Veterans. Well, Christopher, um, what do you make of this selection? You sent the Secretary of State a card this morning, presumably. <laughs> what? 
It was his birthday today. <laughs> Is it really? I didn't realise. I'm terribly sorry. Yeah, the old boy, the old boy 61. Faux pas. Um, and Penny Morton, oh, you can see experience on the House of Commons Defence Committee. And two reservists now. Two reservists, two reservists in there. She's uh, a Royal Naval Reservist, she? She's she? a Royal Naval Reservist down at Portsmouth. Mm-hmm. And then you have Mark, Mark Langster, who's been in the... Uh, in the army reserve, I think for about sort of twenty years. Mm. I mean, I mean, a trained uh, bomb disposal expert, I believe, or has gonna, expertise in that area. Could be useful. It could be useful, but we're in Westminster, mm. too many places. The other thing is, you've got Julian Breezer still there as parliamentary under secretary of state for the reserves, and this mm. reserves is a key part of whatever defence review eventually comes into into being. And on the uh, Commons Defence Select Committee, Rory Stewart has gone, no longer the chair, he's gone to DEFRA. That job's now free, quite a lot of turnaround here. There's a lot of turnaround here, and what a pity, what a pity in the nicest way that Julian Brazier is still a minister, because I would have... I would have sort of uh, given him a is couple Is he your of... mate or something? No, he's not my mate. He promised me lunch <laughs> once and I never got it. But what he is, I tell you about Julian Brazier, apart from being a ex-soldier and also having experience in the Ministry of Defence, so, so far you're OK for chairmanship. But the most important thing is not to have the military background. Mm. The important thing is to have a financial background. Uh, he read maths... I think at Oxford, he was an economic. He was an economic oh. advisor. He knows the economy of all this thing, and so quietly, the ideal sort of person, whoever they choose, might even be Julian uh, uh, Julian Lewis, for example, who desperately wants the job. Well, I tell you, someone who desperately wants the job. Oh, because, Bob. Yeah, Colonel Bob Stewart. He says he wants to do it, and here he is talking to Tim Cooper. If there is a Conservative chairman of the Defence Select Committee decided upon by the usual channels, I will definitely stand because I have spent my life in the armed forces and now I'm a politician. It is also something I care deeply about. I've been on the Defence Committee for five years and I think the Defence Committee has got a huge role in helping to sort out and to guide the next SDSR. And if you're successful and you are put into post... What will you push for? Well, firstly, I'll be pushing to make sure that we spend what is required. 2% is the minimum, in my view. I think, actually, when we do a proper SDSR, we'll find we require to spend more than that. Whether we can is another matter. But the Defence Committee has the duty of saying, this is what we assess we require for the defence of our country. We may not have the power... To enact that, but we certainly have the power to highlight it. And final point on that, do you think number 10, the Conservative Party, would want you in that role? I don't know. I think so. I mean, uh, um, the fact of the matter is, um, it is a vote of the entire House, all 650 MPs. I would hope so, because actually I care very much about defence, and in honesty, so does David Cameron, George Osborne and the Cabinet. We all know that without defence of our country, there's nothing left. Defence is the first duty of government. There you have it. Constitutionally, compassion is the first duty of government, but that's another thing. Uh, he was saying that the, he, he, he would, he, as chairman, he would make sure that the, the government spent 2%. It is not the duty of the, of the, of the Commons Select Committee 
to make sure that they spend such. Mm. It, it's the duty of the government or, or the select committee to decide how they spend it. Well, and there will be make... an election for this. It could be as late as early July, end of okay. June, and it's the Speaker has to sort of nominate. Oh, also around this week then, um, the US Secretary of State, John Kerry, been on his travels again. Where's he been and who's he been talking to? Well, most importantly, he went to Sochi where there We're was... talking about vegetables here, are we? The potatoes and the tomatoes and that lovely meeting. Well, it's supposed to be something like that. But then, listen, he he went to Sochi. Uh, This was very important. This was a meeting that involved the Russians. And Kerry is very, very, very much the idea, man, that you do not just have meetings and agreements and shake hands and sign agreements with just with your friends. You've got to do it with the people that oppose you. Mm. And he wanted to get in among the Russians to sort this out. It's not just sorting out what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. It's far more important than that. It's also what's going on, as we were talking earlier, about what's going on in Syria, what's going on in Turkey, and what, and most important, what's going on in, in Iran for the, for the nuclear arms talks that are going there. Indeed. Um, North Korea, the defence chief has been dispatched and actually quite a... If it's true, what has been reported, been dispatched by anti-aircraft missile or something of that sort. Yeah, he fell asleep. Um, what I mean, happened? not then, I mean, earlier. I mean, what happened, he I is... Say. He is... Um, here he is, uh, Hyun Jong Choi. Uh, and the, uh, the leader of North Korea believed that he might have been disrespectful. He may even have been organising an opposition to him. Now, the South Koreans, the South Korean intelligence people, are saying that he was executed publicly with his anti-aircraft weapons uh, before hundreds of people that were brought into it. He is the sixth to go in the past six months. And I suppose the interest in this is is the fact that if Kim Jong-un is is feeling unstable in this kind of way, that it could threaten other people in the area. It could threaten other people, it could threaten the South South Koreans, certainly wind them up, and the Japanese, and the Japanese especially, uh, at the moment, are getting very upset about it. But it's adding to the uh, strength of the Japanese, who want to change their whole defence policy, so they could have a long-range defence policy, which means they can extend uh, their armies and navies to wherever they want to go. Why are the RAF Chinook helicopters sent by the UK to help in the relief effort in the wake of the Nepal earthquake still on the ground in India? The helicopters were meant to be ferrying aid across Nepal's mountainous terrain, but the Nepal authorities have said they can't fly into Kathmandu Valley in case they damage buildings. Is this really the case, or are there politics at play? Yurenda Basnet is a research fellow from the Overseas Development Institute. Good to speak to you today. What do you think's happening? here. Um, hi there. Um, I think there are two issues to it. Um, and uh, the first is logistics, uh, which I think we shouldn't uh, forget because uh, um, until um, about uh, Monday this week, we thought uh, that we were over the worst disaster, only to be reminded on Tuesday that it, it isn't really over. Um, so what you're ha- getting in uh, Nepal at the moment is um, um, logistical congestion, um, and if you can put it simply, there's a bottleneck uh, happening. Um, and one would uh, hope that the authorities will start opening up a second or a third front to ease that uh, congestion that's happening in the Kathmandu airport, um, uh, and which which is a real um, uh, planning and an organisational um, issue at hand. Um, you, you you mentioned in your report about the British hel- helicopters being stranded in India. Um, but we now have a U.S. helicopter missing, 
uh, and uh, the, the, the whereabouts are unknown and, the, and what happened is also unknown. Uh, but in, an, in a congested situation, um, you are likely to get more uh, mistakes uh, uh, occurring. And, and in, in, in the present situation, uh, it is best that is avoided. Uh, because even in the case of the U.S. helicopter, you now have people uh, being diverted to, uh, to find where the helicopter has gone. Um, so that's the first issue. The second issue um, uh, which you were referring to and um, something that's been uh, coming up, it's not been officially corroborated, but uh, the reports that there is politics uh, uh, at hand in Nepal. Um, you've got, uh, Nepal is, after all, strategically located. Uh, there's an excellent book by um, a British journalist called Thomas Bell. Uh, book titled Fascinating Kathmandu, and he starts mm -hmm. off saying that Kathmandu is sprawling with spies. Um, so in that context, in that context, uh, you do get very nervous uh, neighbours as well as some other so regional powers. How much of it's a, a power struggle in, in the world of international rescue between, say, India and China? Um, again, there are no official reports, but some of the things that I've been hearing from friends back home are that you know the Chinese were complaining about the Indian aircraft entering their airspace, or mm. um, you know vice versa. What you have to remember is that the breadth of Nepal is only 150 kilometers. So yes. the point between India and Nepal that separates the two countries uh, by uh, the space by Nepal is only 150 kilometers. So it's very easy to get into each other's uh, airspace. You mentioned friends back home. You are Nepali yourself. How much of a yes. difference do you, do you think Britain has made by sending Gurkha soldiers back to their homeland? Absolutely. So, yes, uh, uh, being a Nepali, I think uh, I'm, I'm, you know, at the moment still numb from uh, what's happening. Um, uh, initially heartbroken, but now uh, by what happened on Tuesday, uh, it feels that uh, we're just entering a, a, a never-ending um, cycle of uh, disaster. And I, I pray that this is not the new normal and that this would stop. Uh, but yes, uh, a really good point. I think uh, uh, one of the things that is not highlighted and what's not visible, because a lot of the damage that has been done, the devastation and the loss of life is visible through media, uh, what doesn't really come out is the psychological impact, uh, which is, uh, and, and you know, all of us as Nepalis, we're really low on morale because of the uncertainty. Mm. And as Nepalis, we hold the British Gurkhas with really high esteem for what they've achieved and what they've done, um, the service that so they So psychologically, it's a big boost, at least. It, is a, it has been a massive boost to see them come back home because they are, after all, one of us. And, and to, to see them land, um, it does uh, to give a massive uh, boost to the morale, right. and, which is immeasurable. All right, Yuranda Basnet, we wish you and your family well. That's Yuranda Basnet from the Overseas Development Institute. Thank you for your time today. Uh, Christopher, it was revealed yesterday the Prince of Wales wrote to Tony Blair during the Iraq war to raise his concerns about the Lynx helicopter. What did the letter say exactly? Uh, basically, the letter said, look, this Lynx helicopter ain't much good for what they're doing. They would have a more modern helicopter. And the answer is, well, at the time, there was a more modern helicopter coming along. Mm. Um, and there's always been this case about, you know, have they got the right helicopters there? It was a certain concern uh, that he raised with the Prime Minister, and the Prime Minister's answered, I think, um, when you look at the other ten letters, or the other nine letters, uh, it was something on badgers, that we ought have a badger cull. Um, there was something about fish, etc. What it's, what it's doing is it, it's explaining something which we've never seen before, of course. I mean, the, this royalty has gone on, this particular monarchy has, has, has gone on for more than 60 years, and we don't have this sort of expression mm -hmm. from anybody else. But the Princes of Wales, ever since the 18th century, 
have always done this. I mean, there's two and a, two, 200, 250 years of princes of Wales causing trouble, questioning people. And, of course, when he becomes king, he won't have to write to any of these ministers because he'll have the prime minister in there every Tuesday and give him the fanging if he wants to. Um, now, Prince Harry donning his army, army uniform in New Zealand, doing the hacker, um, not long till he leaves the army now. It's next month, isn't he? What's he going to do? What yeah. do you think he should do? What well, would you say? Well, he, sa- he says, look, we, we've got to start earning a living, that the royal family has to earn a living because times have changed and people expect us to earn, earn, earn a living and do things. What can he do, though? He's pretty restricted. I mean, for example, any bank mm. would pay a fortune just to have him on the, on the letterhead. Uh, and so you start thinking, well, diplomatic corps, could he go off to uh, an island, become governor general somewhere for a time? And could he ease himself in? Or could he start his own thing? I mean, uh, Prince Edward, for example, started his own film company. But I think that Prince Harry is going to find it very, very, very difficult to get a job that people won't say that was just sort of put together for him and it doesn't actually mean a thing because he's too high profile. Let's um, talk about something a bit unusual around. Uh, Navy SEALs, not the ones you might think. Uh, They're Russian. Um, Two of them, actually. They're actual SEALs dressed in military uniform, if what we read is true. It's all happened, apparently, at an aquarium in Siberia to mark Victory Day, um, wielding toy guns, knives and wearing military headgear. They dive through obstacles and raise flags during their performance. Sounds like a good night out, Christopher. Wonderful night out, isn't it? I can remember that when I used to play rugby. Hey, listen, <laughs> you've got to remember that Siberia is a very special place. Seals live in Siberia. There are more sub- seals in Siberia than there are people. And it's the sort of thing that you do because there's nothing much else to do in Siberia, especially in, in somewhere like Vladivostok. But it is the headquarters of the Russian Tiki Flot, the biggest <laughs> Russian a nuclear submarine uh, squadron in, in, in the world. And here's to Tiki Flot. Uh, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all our contributors. Do keep in touch with your comments on Twitter. We are at BFBS SITREP. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next time next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>